there's an old joke in Cuba that whenever you ask someone, you know, what are the great triumphs or achievements of the revolution, they would say national sovereignty, healthcare, education. And then they would say, well, what are the big problems or the failings of the revolution? And they would say breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? <laughs> and so now they don't even have those first three things that they've achieved, mm-hmm. nor do they have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so, and so that's part of the reason why people aren't putting up with it anymore, in addition to their access to digital yep. media that lets them shout and scream so other people can hear them. This is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast, Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Ted Henkin. Ted is a professor at Baruch College in New York. His research focuses on Cuba, and he is one of the editors of the book Cuba's Digital Revolution. So, Ted, thank you so much for joining me. It's good to be with you, especially uh, talk to your uh, listeners. Uh, you know, the, the podcast title really grabbed my attention. Uh, you know, we have certainly have electile dysfunction in this country, but there are countries where they don't even have elections to dysfunction. So uh, so it's important right. to remember remember where we are uh, relative to a place like Cuba. So I'm happy to share my thoughts on Cuba with you guys. Absolutely. And, and that's why I wanted to have you on. You uh, are so knowledgeable about the field and, and have so many interesting insights. Um, so Cuba obviously doesn't garner... I would say the same amount of attention used to in the past. We're talking so much about China, understandably, Russia, uh, now Ukraine. You know, we talk about Iran, North Korea. Uh, but, you know, Cuba has obviously played such a impactful role in, in the history of American politics. It's essentially for maybe 70 years dictated America's entire geopolitical strategy, right, with respect to foreign relations. Um, you can't win the presidency without winning Florida, generally speaking, last time was a exception, but, uh, and you can't win Florida without Cuban Americans. Right, right. uh, so it, even, even today plays a massive, that topic plays a massive role in, in not only our foreign policy, but our domestic policy as well, which is pretty interesting. And it's such a unique nation. There's, there's nowhere, there's nowhere like it. Um, so last time we heard about Cuba in any meaningful way in the mainstream press was these protests, which occurred about, but six, seven months ago over the summer, when uh, protesters were taking the streets against the government, apparently largest demonstrations in what, in generation and decade, and they were chanting Libertad, they were uh, Liberty. They were also um, chanting this phrase, uh, Patria y Vida, Homeland or Life, uh, which became a rallying cry after a hugely successful what, Cuban anti-regime rap song went viral. Uh, so maybe walk us through the nature of these Cuban protests from a few months ago. How significant were they? Um, what were they about? Did they die off? And where, where, where's that all that stand right now in Cuba? What's the situation sure. like? Sure. So let me start with the point you made about Cuba's influence on the U.S. Um, I mean, there is a Cuba that exists in our minds as Americans, as outsiders, as non-Cubans. 
and then there's a real Cuba that exists in Cuba, and it's also it's always important to kind of separate those uh, because the real Cuba, the ones that you know Cubans live in, is 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 powerful and affects people's lives, and and we understand Cuba really through our own domestic politics, and it's often the the, t the tail that wags the dog of of presidential politics every four years, but the Cubans don't have the luxury of dealing with their problems once every four years. They've got to deal with it every day. Um, so the, the protests that happened on the 11th of July, uh, 2021 in Cuba were certainly unprecedented and were the largest protests probably, you could say, in the last 60 years since the revolution came to power in, in January of 1959. Wow. Um, they were the largest in the sense that they took place all across the island and in more than 50 different cities and towns. They drew people from many different walks of life. This wasn't just a matter of political dissidents um, or independent artists or activists. It was a, something that was much more broad based than that. And the things that they were demanding were a, a broad swath of things, everything from economic reform, access to medicine and food, um, to political uh, regime change, essentially. Um, and, um, and this happened on, on, a, on a number of days, although they, they certainly uh, faded when the government took to the streets and called, quote unquote, revolutionaries to the street to take back the streets from, from the supposed you know, mercenaries or, or counter-revolutionaries, right? I mean, the government and the president, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, actually uh, the word, the best word to use here would be sicked the, 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 the supposed revolutionaries with brickbats on any protesters along with sicking his own repressive forces on them. At the same time, he had the government shut down the internet. Um, and so that was the kind of the one-two punch of physically taking back the streets, but also digitally taking back cyberspace. Uh, because the government has been caught flat-footed over the past uh, five to ten years because activists, artists, uh, digital millennials in Cuba have really beat the government to the punch when it comes to using the internet to speak truth to power, to um, demand that the government uh, be more accountable or responsive, and to also publish uh, a different, much more closer to reality version of life in Cuba that the government media has, has basically uh, you know, blocked out, uh, uh, monopolized. And so all of these things are happening at once. The, the protests themselves, you could say they have fundamental causes, deep causes, and then they have triggers that are kind of working together. So the fundamental deep causes, I would say, are the double existence of, uh, of an unproductive, inefficient um, uh, economy or economic system that doesn't incentivize work and that um, is monopolized by government companies or government businesses, enterprises, and has a very small and only partially legalized private sector that's constantly playing whack-a-mole with the government, um, combined with um, essentially the worst or, or among the worst uh, records in terms of political freedoms and um, civil liberties in the whole hemisphere. Um, on par with countries like Saudi Arabia and China um, and Russia, right? In terms of in terms of just fundamental uh, uh, liberties, uh, kind of uh, um, uh, uh, enshrined in kind of like 
the liberal democratic experiment of the last hundred years, Cuba uh, uh, basically erased those as part of its revolution 60 years ago. And there's been a struggle to try to regain them. I'm talking about freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of association, um, apart from, you know, democratic political system, right? Or the lack thereof, right? So those are the fundamental causes. But the trigger causes uh, are a combination of Trump's uh, um, policies toward Cuba, which basically erased the Obama opening that took place starting in 2014. In the last two years of the Obama, uh, of the second Obama administration, there was a big opening toward Cuba and a, and a thawing out of this icy relationship we've had. Trump basically scuttled that during his four years in office and, um, and, and strengthened the sanctions, strengthened the, what we call the embargo. But that was combined with two other big things. One was that after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Cuba turned toward Venezuela and Hugo Chavez, who was then um, you know, president for various terms, uh, a strongman president of Venezuela, and they became Cuba's new sugar daddy, Cuba's new trading partner and aid partner. Um, but that has essentially withered away, eroded under uh, Nicolás Maduro and the civil, political, economic meltdown that took place in Venezuela. And so that also, that also combined with the, the embargo has hurt the Cuban economy. And then on top of that, Cuba uh, was really impacted by COVID, not so much at first by actual disease, uh, although that eventually did catch up with Cuba and Cuba had a really delayed uh, reaction in terms of disease spreading, people dying, etc. At first it was actually fairly well controlled, but the disease basically, or, or the spread of the pandemic, basically killed Cuba's international tourism industry, which is mm -hmm. one of the fundamental uh, pillars of its economy. I mean, Cuba went literally from a, 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 a monthly um, average arrival of foreigners around two to three hundred thousand to around wow. two to three thousand. So it dropped like ninety five, ninety nine percent in terms of the international arrivals. And it had been really counting on this uh, uh, between 2015, 16 and 17 since Obama made it easier to travel to Cuba. Um, so those three things really right. um, destroyed the economy and, and increased what were already chronic scarcities in Cuba to medicines and to foods. And then the government, at probably at the worst possible time, January 1st, 2021, so almost exactly 13 months ago, the government tried to unify its currency. They imposed a new kind of, um, they're trying to get their economic house in order. But what this did is it provoked uh, uncontrolled inflation over the the year of 2021. So even though people's price uh, salaries incomes went up, the prices of everyday items went up even more, leading to scarcities, more lines, um, and therefore people were angry, frustrated. Uh, they couldn't get access to food and medicine during the worst part of the pandemic. And then on top of all the other things I described, it basically triggered. Now, this, all of this was combined with what we call in our book, right, Cuba's digital revolution meaning that over the last five to 10 years, and especially since December of 2018, Cubans have gone online, have been able to access the internet and mobile technology, especially the internet on their cell phones, 
And this has allowed them to kind of narrate their own version of reality that basically is at odds with the government propaganda. And therefore, they can communicate horizontally within Cuba, uh, share their frustrations. A bunch of new independent uh, newspapers and magazines have popped up in Cuba, run by Cubans, that have done real investigative reporting exposing a lot of the, the, the problems that the government has been trying, you know, been hiding. And this also allowed Cubans to engage in activities that then would go viral on sites like Facebook with Facebook Live, where they would record something happening in real time. Other people would see it. They could also organize things, you know, months or weeks in advance and have these real world marches or protests. So all of those things combined. And so on, on, on July 11th, uh, they came to a head and people took to the streets. Mm -hmm. So yeah, as you described that, I'm instantly reminded of a situation I'm a bit more familiar with is uh, Iran, where you have same kind of dynamics, a young population you have, as you were describing, people who weren't typically the protesters of before. Now you see these things springing up all over the country. Same thing with Iran, uh, largely fueled by applications like Twitter and Signal and Telegram and all that as well to mobilize. And uh, and then obviously, you know, the parallels with the massive repression from the top on these protesters, I think. So I read that in Cuba, what, 700 people were charged during these protests. Uh, at least 50 were between the ages of 16 to 18 uh, just for protesting. Cuba is interesting as well because I want to ask you about sort of the economic situation with the currency because it's a very peculiar situation uh, they've had there. Um, but before we get to that, why do you think that Cuba didn't go the way of the Chinese model or the Vietnam model? It's pretty much like the, you know, the last one standing maybe next to North Korea where China and Vietnam, they still have the Communist Party at the top, authoritarian, but they eased up economic reforms. They you know, allowed for foreign investment to come in. They liberalized a lot of their trade. Why, why, did, why do you think Cuba didn't engage in, in that row? Or, or did they try? Well, my friends, my economist friends call that market, market socialism, right? And uh, Cuba hasn't exactly, exactly right, hasn't taken that path. Um, there have been elements of that that Cuba has tried out. They have instituted things like what they call in Cuba self-employment. Um, they just recently, just, just three or four months ago, finally, after lots and lots of years of kicking the can down the road, they legalized private businesses. But we'll see how that works out because it has tons and tons of restrictions. Essentially, people who are professional professionals can't go into private business in their professions, right? So it creates, it creates these weird things where you have doctors driving uh, taxi cabs because they can make more money driving a cab than they can... You know, because right. if, they, if they practice their profession, they're forced to do so within the state system that pays very little, right? Uh, they can't practice it privately in the free market, right? Um, I actually just discussed your question about why not Vietnam, why not China as a model for Cuba to follow with some, some friends of mine last week. And my argument or my idea is that the main reason is that the Cuban government is afraid that instituting those economic reforms when it's so close to the United States with both the United States mm -hmm. and the Cuban American community kind of poised to, you know, take that opportunity to really take over the Cuban economy. I think that China and Vietnam could do that because it can control 
you know, the diaspora of the Vietnamese or the Chinese uh, and the United States, and it can kind of partner with them and still be in control of their own economy. Whereas I think that the Cuban leadership is afraid that if it follows that market socialism model, uh, very quickly, uh, Cuban Americans, uh, Cuban American, you know, investors or capitalists or right, whoever, yeah, right. and the American economy point. will mm -hmm. pounce and take over because because the, the the presence of that community and the presence of U.S. policy in Cuba is much more strong than I would say relative to the United States' role in China or in Vietnam right. and the role of the diaspora in those countries. Um, you could also argue that uh, just beyond that fear, there's also, they're happy with their monopoly and they don't mind if it is, uh, impoverishes the mass of people as long as the people who are at the top can, you know, can, 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 can live insulated from that and can really be in control um, of, you know, there's a kind of a, I, I always tell people that Cuba doesn't really have communism or socialism. Uh, not necessarily as a way to celebrate communism or socialism, but to kind of really analyze what's going on in Cuba is a, is really state capitalism. They have their own version of capitalism, but it's monopolized by the government and particular entities within the government who benefit from that. Uh, whereas the Cuban citizens, Cuban people, are basically segregated from participating or benefiting mm -hmm. from that. The old capitalism for me, socialism for you. <laughs> well said, well <laughs> that's, said, yes. That, that's certainly how it works. The... Um, so you mentioned the bit about the taxi cab drivers. I was listening to something interesting. I have a guest next week. His name is Dominic Frisbee. He's a brilliant guy. He was giving a little anecdote about when he went to Cuba, I guess when he was a young guy, 25 years ago, he was sort of a young, impressionable, uh, maybe socialist sympathizing kind of person. And what he, what he realized was that really disturbed him. And this was in the context of him discussing how when you have such a corrupt economic system, such a corrupt monetary system, that it starts to erode the values and morals of the people within it. And so as he was as he was discussing, you know, the taxi cab drivers and uh, prostitutes, those are two professions that people were incentivized to choose, even in a lot of cases by their families, because they'd be interacting with American or European tourists. So I guess mostly European back then. Uh, particularly Italian tourists for some reason, they, they, they came a lot uh, yes. and they would be paid in US dollars and they would be getting more in a night or a week than a heart surgeon could get in months. And how that sort of just warps, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, you're going to go with being a taxi driver or a prostitute over some of these other professions. A lot of people make that choice and just how that warps the sort of human psyche and, and, and the values of society um, is just, it's so, it's so dis disturbing, you know? Yeah. I, I always say that, uh, that, you know, I mean, I consider myself uh, left of center, but there's no better thing to temper or cure someone's socialist tendencies than going to a socialist country and seeing how things don't work mm -hmm. in those socialist countries, right? Especially the socialist yeah. countries that have command economies, what we call state socialism, right? The, the socialism that's practiced in Cuba or in North Korea, or for that matter, in Vietnam or China is different from the, you know, the, the socialism that exists in many U European or Scandinavian countries, right? And and we often in the United States overlook that very important distinction. Um, there are versions of democratic socialism, and there are also versions of very undemocratic and very um, unproductive and efficient socialisms, right? And Cuba, as you said, and as your friend pointed out, 
his observations, uh, is that second version that really does distort. It has, a friend of mine in Cuba calls it, it has anthropological damage that it does on people and on a society because it totally um, warps incentive structures, uh, professional, let's say, uh, ethics. Uh, you know, you, you, you go to your job because you get paid, but you also go to your job in most cases because you care about it, you believe in it, you have a, 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 a kind of an ethic of, of doing that, right? But in Cuba, those are very, very heavily challenged because you often, you often actually lose money when you do your regular job and you have to have the moonlighting job to make money on the side. And, and then that then uh, warps things. And then so you have things like restaurants, cab drivers that, that develop these side businesses because they're exposed to the hard currency that foreigners bring in. And then therefore they, they also may connect to other ways that are more illicit ways of, mm -hmm. of getting that money from tourists, uh, you know, through things like, you know, prostitution um, and, and, um, and also just a waste of the talent. Uh, the, the, right, a, right. the Cuban government will often uh, accuse the United States of incentivizing a brain drain, taking all their smart people away. But I have another friend, a Cuban friend, he says, but what, what the Cuban government promotes is a brain waste, right? Mm -hmm. They have these really educated, uh, brilliant people who are often frustrated and are forced to go, go abroad into the diaspora, into exile, mm -hmm. to be able to practice and benefit from their profession, right? I mean, Miami- Right, or even in their own home countries, right? I, I, saw, I saw a program even in their own countries. Uh, I forgot which program it was. It was on, um, it, was on the t it was on the TV news or something like that. But this guy was a, a doctor and he opted to be a baker. Right. So the, whether, whether, you know, the, obviously, you know, being Baker is great and all that, but, you know, we need doc, we need the people with the aptitude for being doctors to be doctors. And so but he went to be a baker because he could be paid in U.S. dollars because and, and he started this this bakery, which is now, um, you know, catering, I guess, before the pandemic to tourists and all that. Yeah. And he was making way more of a livelihood. Uh, exactly. Being a baker. Exactly. So, exactly. exactly. Right. Cuba, Cuba ironically pushes the professionals either into exile or into what some people call internal exile, where they have to practice something else to get by. And in addition to those two things, there's so many overeducated doctors in Cuba that the Cuban government actually exports them to other countries as a way to bring in hard currency. That's one of the, the three pillars of the Cuban economy is tourism, remittances sent by Cuban Americans, and the export, they call it the export of medical services, but basically it is uh, sending Cuban doctors to countries, and it's mostly seen as a kind of humanitarian gesture, but it's all paid for in hard currency by those countries that's then taken back to Cuba. Uh, what do you mean by hard currency? Dollars. Uh, you know, oh, okay, it's, dollars. it's paid for. It's not just you know a, a humanitarian gesture, Cuban sending doctors abroad. Cuba sends doctors, and those countries pay per doctor, per medical professional, and the government of Cuba keeps 80% of that money uh, and the professional only gets, uh, you know, like 15 or 20% of that money, but they only get it if they go back to Cuba. So uh, uh, some people have called this, you know, um, a form of modern uh, exploitation or slavery mm -hmm. where the doctors basically are forced into this. They end up making a lot better living if they go on these international missions. And they also probably do it because they believe in the cause, but right. they're also forced to do it by lack of options and lack of any private sector where they could they could you know practice their professions and so maybe like they'll make what a couple hundred bucks for the month rather than 30 is it something along exactly. those lines exactly exactly yeah. mm -hmm. 
speaking about the um, the currency situation. So what role does the U.S. dollar play in Cuba? Because I know they had this confusing currency situation forever where they tried to manipulate, you know, and obscure how worthless a currency was. They had like a convertible peso, which you, you if you come in there, you get you use that if you're a tourist. And then they had their own peso. But the convertible peso was like a one to one. How did it all work? Do you have any insight on that? <laughs> Well, you have to remember back to when you used to play Monopoly as a kid, right? I, I have a I have a seven year old, and I was just teaching him Monopoly over the during the pandemic, and he was fascinated with the money, you know, because for him it was a game the the, the money had value, right? Um, where as, so in Cuba you had this kind of invention of a fake currency. What happened was going back twenty five years to nineteen ninety three, the Cuban government was in a tailspin, the economy was in a free fall because the Soviet Union had collapsed. And so the Cuban government legalized the use of dollars because people were already hoarding dollars and using dollars illegally. And before that, you could actually go to jail for using foreign currency, especially dollars. But since everybody was doing it in the early 90s, they legalized it. And so at that point, they ended up having two currencies. They had their Cuban peso, which was increasingly worthless. And then they had a, 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 a U.S. dollar. So what they did, to kind of like, to have more dollars in their economy, they invented a new currency called the convertible currency. And basically, this is kind of a, a parallel peso, but but that has the same value within the Cuban system as the dollar. So they had essentially three currencies. They had a U.S. dollar, the actual physical U.S. dollars. Then they had a peso that they invented that was the same value as the dollar. And then they had the pesos that people were actually paid in that for many, many years was about 25 to 1. So it was a worth less than a nickel, right? And so you, whenever you, had, you went to Cuba, you had to very quickly learn that one, one, one peso was worth less than a nickel and one peso was worth a dollar. And if you screwed them up, you could really get, you know, get screwed, right? Uh, right. Uh, in terms of someone pulling a fast one on you, about, depending on which type of peso you were using. So this was basically the situation for you know, about 20 years. Um, recently, the Cuban government uh, tried to get rid of the use of the dollar, and they just had the two, the two different pesos, right? They had their, their convertible peso that was pegged at the dollar, and then they had their peso. Finally, after years of delaying and delaying, because when you have these two pesos, it totally distorts the value of goods and services, of imports and exports, mm -hmm. of salaries, and so it's really unsustainable. Um, and so what ended up happening is on January 1st, 2021, 13 months ago, the Cuban government announced that it was eliminating the convertible this invented currency that they had and just going back to their original peso, right? Um, they called this the ordenamiento uh, monetario, the, you know, the monetary reordering, right, of, of the economy. And this was something that they needed to do for sure, but they did it at their most vulnerable time in, in the, you know, in the recent history of Cuba. And so what it did is it ended up leading to historic inflation over the course of the last 13 months, uh, which is still, uh, to, to a large degree, uncontrolled. Um, you have the official exchange rate of that currency, and then you have the black market exchange rate, which is much more, you know, captures its true value, what, what people will actually buy and sell it for versus what the government declares the value is. But that basically means that the value of their internal currency, the Cuban peso, is increasingly losing its already low value. Um, mm -hmm. And so people then 
do whatever they can to uh, hold on to, save euros or dollars, because those currencies have a value that will be there tomorrow they can count on. Right. Um, so so that, that's, that's, that's basically, I mean, that's a kind of a short version of their yeah. kind of experience with this monopoly. Do the people on the ground there, is this a situation where a lot of people just want dollars or you're like, they, they won't even really want to take your pesos because that's kind of the situation in, in Venezuela. Well, they can't, they can't do that. They would probably okay. pr prefer to do that, but they can't do mm -hmm. that because remember the government holds a monopoly over the buying and selling of virtually all products and services and they only accept the pesos. Mm -hmm. And okay. so, and also they only pay people in pesos, right? Right. So in that sense, you have to use pesos, right? However, and this is a big however, uh, about a year, year and a half ago, the government set up, for, for a long time, going back 25 years, the government has set up special stores that you can only use hard currency to sharp shop in. Hard, hard currency meaning dollars mm -hmm. or the, the old peso equivalent. Mm -hmm. Even though they phased out that currency, these stores still exist. They're called uh, MLCs, is the term they use in Cuba. Um, basically, uh, they are hard currency stores. Um, back in the day, these were stores that were only, uh, they only existed for foreigners and for diplomats to do their shopping in. They weren't really for Cubans. But nowadays, they're for Cubans, but you can only shop in them if you have access to hard currency. And generally, you can only get access to hard currency if you have relatives in Miami who literally will put money on these prepaid kind of credit card, debit, debit cards, and that allows you to go in to these stores. But this creates, of course, a very heavy social uh, backlash because it creates an apartheid system where right. only those with access to the hard currency can shop in these stores. And often these stores are the only stores with access to key staples that people need on a day-to-day -day basis. And even in these stores, ironically, there are, there are chronic scarcities. Uh, um, and so it's, it's a real uh, basket case in terms of this. Uh, still existing in Cuba, going back from the 1960s, is a, is a parallel economy, which is the economy of the ration booklet. There's a whole network of stores all across the country. They're called, they call them in Spanish, La Bodega, but they're different from the bodegas in New York City, uh, run by Dominicans, because these are government-run stores, and they sell staples at fixed prices, and you can only shop in these stores if you have a ration booklet, and you can only buy what 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 you are rationed in these stores. You have I to see. buy it, but they're they're subsidized prices, and so most people in Cuba and their household economy they use the ration booklet for what they can get at those ration stores at really greatly subsidized prices. But then they need a subsequent uh, 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 um, an extra source of income, a supplementary mm -hmm. income, and then they supplement by shopping in the dollar stores or these MLC stores mm -hmm. so that they can piece Which together. What, what kind of stuff are we talking about in the uh, dollar stores? Well, anything that's imported, so electronics, okay. uh, refrigerator, you know, but also a blender, a toaster, those kind of things that are generally imported from China, just like here, they're imported from China there. But also uh, things like, you know, beef, things like uh, cooking oil. Um, you know, generally you can get fruits and rice and vegetable and some meats like pork and the other kinds of stores. 
I mean, there's a third type of market too that is like farmers markets where farmers come from the countryside and then they sell at, at higher prices that are mostly market prices and these farmers markets. So you have the government stores, you have the farmers markets, and then you have the dollar stores. And so you have to kind of like navigate those three worlds in order to fill your table mm -hmm. each, each day. And the prices are, you know, like they're like significantly different depending on which store you're right. in or, you know, or in the case of the dollar stores in a different currency. Um, and so it creates these, these real uh, heavy um, chasms within the society based on who has access to these currencies, therefore who has access to these lifestyles. And it creates within a so supposedly socialist country huge glaring inequalities. Right. So right now I, I read that it's basically the worst it's been since like 1993, the special period in terms of their GDP drop off. Um, after right around that point in the early 90s, there, as you said, their sugar daddy, the Soviet Union, who was propping them up, collapsed. And so they were basically left on their own to, to flounder. And it results in what, like a huge famine, a lot of, a lot of people died, a lot of malnutrition. And now apparently at this current moment, it's the worst it's been since then. So these are essentially seems like to be like the two worst times uh, in the early 90s and right now. And I was watching as I mentioned to you, like this, uh, this Vice documentary who, who have been doing pretty good work on it, and they would go into these, I assume, government-run stores and also the dollar stores, and they wouldn't even have things, or, and the hospitals, and they wouldn't even have things like ibuprofen, even something as simple as that. They couldn't get ibuprofen or aspirin anywhere, uh, which is just shocking beyond belief. But we're also told that the they have this like amazing kind of like healthcare system, and they're famous for their doctors and all that. How... how how do you square that up? Like, what's are their doctors really that good? I mean, I guess relative maybe Latin America, they have a really good uh, doctor system. How do they compare to like, um, you know, Western doctors or American doctors? And what's the deal with their healthcare situation? Well, there's a lot of uh, glaring contradictions when you try to make sense of a place like Cuba, right? Um, and the Cubans always always joke to me. I tell them that I I'm a Cubanologo. I study Cuba. They say, Hey, if you figure it out, let me know because I can't I can't figure it out, right? The Cubans know that their system is, is bizarre. Um, I think to understand Cuba, you've got to be able to hold two contradictory ideas or even realities in your head at the same time. So um, I think, for example, with the, in regards to the healthcare system, um, while I would say that the quality of the education and healthcare that's always celebrated in Cuba is much overhyped, it is a real accomplishment of the country over the last 60 years to have prior prioritized those things and produced two or three generations of, of professionals who they can export to the world and actually do uh, quality health, provide quality health care. Right? But, of course, that has uh, been achieved at a, a very high cost in terms of just human freedom, but also their own private sector has been destroyed or collapsed. So you can have great doctors, but you know you, you might have to send those doctors abroad, or those doctors might leave the country because they can't make a living working as a doctor. Mm -hmm. So you know when you kind of uh, nationalize your economy and you kick out all the foreign supposed exploiters, right? Um, then you have to produce everything yourself, right? And maybe you right. can't produce the medical equipment or the medicine, right? Um, this is in addition to the very real impact of the embargo, uh, the U.S. embargo on Cuba makes it more difficult or illegal to buy and, for Cuba to buy and sell things from the United States, right? 
Um, they can buy food and medicine from the United States, even with the embargo, but it's very difficult to do that because there's a lot of other, let's say, red tape around those tra transactions. And the embargo also has what we might call extraterritorial provisions. Basically, the embargo doesn't just prevent trade between the U.S. and Cuba, but it also sanctions and punishes third countries and third parties that do business with Cuba if they want to still do business with the U.S. So it has the embargo, the embargo of Cuba is a unique, kind of a unique in all the world in terms of our sanctions regimes because it has that other layer that punishes third countries and third parties. With that said, the reality that the controls have produced in Cuba have ended up fracturing the society into a real unequal society with haves and have-nots. Those people who are connected to the party or to the military might have much better access to medicines and quality health care. Or Advil. <laughs> or Advil. Or you might have a bizarre situation where, yeah, there's a hospital and it's free and the doctor is the doctors are really good but you have to bring your own lunch you have to bring your own sheets you have to bring your own medicines and you can't always get those things easily so it is kind of a dual surreal reality where you have a great doctor but no medicine right yeah that's a, that's that's a tough one to get by <laughs> it's unbelievable uh this miguel miguel diaz canal the the current president so what's what's his deal? Is he he doesn't have the Castro mystique? So it was Fidel then his brother. Then they didn't go with somebody in the family, which is uh, differentiates them from somebody like North Korea, which is kind of interesting. Why do you think that it didn't? Or why do you think it didn't go to a another family member? Was there just no one qualified? And who is this guy? And does he still have the? Do you think he still has the sort of ability to repress people, given that he doesn't have that? You know, Castro cachet. Well, I think one of the things that we can attribute the protest to is the fact that this new president, although he does have at his command the loyalty of the military and the repressive forces, the secret police and the rest, he doesn't have any of the historic, let's say, legitimacy or legacy of the Castro brothers, you know, that 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 actually helped them to, you know, kind of if not uh, get people to support them, at least get people not to oppose them, right? Um, because they had this historical legacy from having defeated and, and driven out of the country the previous dictator and achieved certain national independence and sovereignty for Cuba. And they could always point to, hey, healthcare and education, et cetera. This guy who's in there now, first of all, he's, you know, he's younger, you know, he's in his uh, 50s or 60s, right? And he doesn't have any of that, you know, bearded cachet of having, you know, fought in the, in the mountains, right? Um, so I think that the people were much more likely to call his BS, right? Uh, take to the streets. You know, I mean, the, one of the biggest uh, chants that you'll find people online and in the street say, or spray paint even on the walls in Cuba is Diaz Canel Singao, which basically is calling him a fucker, right? Um, it's kind of a good Cuban word for, 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 for fucker, right? Um, or, or, or fuck you, right? Um, yeah. And um, part of that is just railing against the government, but part of that is zeroing in on him as having none of the charisma, none of the charm, and none of the ability to get people to endure any longer because he can't promise them anything in return for that, right? Um, 
he's been plottingly slow on any necessary economic reforms, and he has shut the door on any kind of uh, political uh, changes of, of any real significance. And so um, he doesn't really, he certainly was handpicked by the previous leadership, the Castro brothers, or the remaining living brother, Raul Castro, uh, because they believed that he could preserve power and preserve the revolution, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. You could call it also preserve the dictatorship as, right. as it had been functioning. Um, you know, kind of like rearranging the chairs on the Titanic uh, so that they, they could still have a place to sit and, and, and rule from. Mm -hmm. And he and he has certainly done that. And Cuba is not in any, you know, eminent danger of collapse or overthrow. But this last year has kind of taught us that all bets are off because people are fed up with th there, there being no real response or accountability on the form of the government. Before the... the the, the, the government could promise people tranquility, stability, and, you know, enough to eat, right? Uh, even, though, even though they couldn't promise them, you know, civil or political freedoms. But those other promises, in addition to education and healthcare, have slowly eroded uh, or evaporated. Uh, there's, a, there's an old joke in Cuba that whenever you ask someone, you know, what are the great triumphs or achievements of the revolution, they would say, national sovereignty, health care, education. And then they would say, well, what are the big problems or the failings of the revolution? And they would say, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? <laughs> and so now they don't even have those first three things that they've achieved, mm -hmm. nor do they have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so, and so that's part of the reason why people aren't putting up with it anymore, in addition to their access to digital yeah. media that lets them shout and scream so other people can hear them. That'll get people going. Was this current president, was he the one who was responsible for the rollout of the Internet and these Wi-Fi hotspots that I guess they have now in Cuba? Or was it Raul Castro? Well, he was he was the first vice president during that time. And so he was certainly aware of them. And he was actually initially famous or even celebrated because he he, he was quoted as saying in one of his speeches that, you know, we can't just... Um, you know, silence our uh, voices or silent or, or shut out voices. We need to allow voices. But people right. thought he was talking about freedom of speech. But what he was really, right. really doing was saying, we as revolutionaries need to take to the Internet and to use the same propaganda on the Internet that we've been using. Right. Our version of freedom of speech. Yeah. As long as as long as we agree with that. <laughs> so in that sense, he is certainly no change. But the, the right. fundamental change that has happened is that for either economic reasons, because the government runs the Internet and therefore it makes money every time anyone tweets or, or sends an email or get, goes online, whether they're criticizing the government or not, the government is the one who's providing that service. So it's, it's making money hand over fist or whether it's some kind of calculated risk. In any case, starting in, in, in December of 2018 is when Cuba is kind of like it was kind of like a, a a before and after date, because it was then that Cubans could buy um, access, monthly or constant access to internet on their cell phones. That's 2018, you said? December of 2018. And so since then, over the last three years, Cubans have had a nonstop, every couple months or every month, uh, different kinds of marches, protests, sit-ins. Wow. Um, and that, of course, uh, culminated in, in, in July of 2019, although there were some significant events before that, all of which 
had access to the internet and alternative uh, narration of reality and reporting on reality as a fundamental trigger. I wouldn't say any of these things were caused by the internet, but all of them were facilitated by access to social media by a broad swath of people in the, on the island. Do they have a great, do they have a uh, great wall, a great firewall like China does? Is there anything that the government actively censors well, that you're aware of? Yes, in the sense that, you know, if someone has access to the internet in Cuba, it's almost always through the government. So the government can turn the internet on and off, turn mm -hmm. certain access to certain sites on and off, and it has done that increasingly in recent years, but it can also block specific sites or even block individuals. And so it does all of those things in different ways. Um, but one of the, the one of the things that people who study the internet and internet freedom and its impact on politics around the world have discovered is that there's this thing called the dictator's dilemma, meaning that whenever a government, authoritarian or otherwise, regulates or tries to control or shut down the internet, it's also shooting itself in the foot because the government itself right. needs the internet for a whole swath of other other issues that aren't political or aren't controversial. You know, uh, meta healthcare, education, you know, remittances, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is, a second part of the same thing is what I would call the Facebook effect, right? For many people around the world, Facebook is the internet, right? I mean, they, they might have a vague idea of what the internet is, but their experience of it is Facebook. Right. And countries might be able to shut down a critical website or a bunch of critical websites. But a lot of people put their content within a Trojan horse like Facebook, and a government is very, very wary of shutting off something like Facebook or Twitter itself. And so this allows people with critical uh, versions of reality, independent reporting, denunciations, to use Facebook and Twitter and Telegram and WhatsApp and all of these platforms, they can they can put their content in those things instead of exclusively having their content on their own website. You know, YouTube, for example. I mean, YouTube mm -hmm. is like it's just universal channel that everyone can access right. all over the world. And if you, let's say, I have a friend in Cuba who has a daily morning podcast of 15 minutes, and she's always harshly critical of the government. And she lives in Havana and she does her podcast. And she puts it on like 12 different wow. platforms. The main one is YouTube. And she does it as an audio only because Cubans have bandwidth problems. So it's an audio only mm -hmm. YouTube channel. So she uses, she uses YouTube as her radio transmitter. And anybody who has access to YouTube has access to what's ever in. How's she get away with that? Well, she's, she is, I mean, she, she, she's very smart and she knows how to technically yeah. do it. And she has supporters outside of Cuba, but she's also kind of the Joan of Arc of Cuban bloggers and Cuban journalists. And so the government doesn't want the headache of repressing her because mm -hmm. it would cause major international outcry. It represses lots and lots of journalists mm -hmm. who are mostly unknown, but it doesn't want to touch her. Her name right. is Joanny Sanchez. Right. It's like the uh, yeah. Alexei Navalny situation for a while in Russia where he was like the biggest critic, but they, they left him alone for a while because it was too obvious. Right, right. Well, exactly, mm -hmm. except that they haven't done to her what, what, what Putin did to Navalny yet. Um, right, and, eventually. And, and, um, but but they're, they're systematically trying to drive into exile or shut up independent journalists across the island. So last thing, so uh, China has, has been able to use technology to 
further implement a surveillance state and and uh, in a lot of ways increase its authoritarian control over people. Um, I'm not sure if Cuba is as competent as as the CCP, who are very tech savvy. I want to see your thoughts on that. Where do you see? First of all, what do you think about that? And then where do you see this experiment going with? Given the fact that there is a kind of a point of no return, they they have the internet now, they're able to use it. What do you think are the, the probabilities that this will lead to some sort of regime change or, or significant changes in the next few years? I think that the biggest problem um, for for this movement, this internet-fueled or enabled movement to coalesce beyond something that's a spontaneous march or protest, is that one of the one of the issues with, you know, uh, internet fueled protests um, is that it's often leaderless, and that makes it hard to repress. But it also makes mm -hmm. it hard to replicate. You need to really have a movement. You need a dedicated, organized, hierarchically arranged group of people who are going to um, come up with political platforms, who are going to be able to. Um, articulate demands on the current system or, or provide an alternative. What we saw in July in Cuba was unprecedented, but it was only able to happen because it was unplanned. The very people who were marching didn't know the day before or maybe the hour before they were marching that they were going to be marching. It was something that happened spontaneously and virally. The same people who were involved and other leaders in civil society, journalists, artists, activists, they tried to have a second version of that in November, and it fizzled because they needed to do it in an organized way that it would be announced so that people could do it and it could have some kind of continuity. They had a list of demands that they were going to present to the government, and there was going to be a public showing of support for that. The government shut it down because the government knew beforehand, and they basically put all the people who were involved under house arrest, didn't let them leave their houses, and there was no march, right? And so the problem is that there is a big gulf between generalized discontent and real structures that can challenge the sitting regime. And you don't need internet to do that. You need organization. You need right, leadership. Uh, trust. You need leadership and, and, and these, these, these and the government has been really effective at making any kind of sustained alternatives to itself uh, very short-lived by pushing people into exile. Um, and also having a monopoly over the, the, the media so that people can't learn about other people and their, and their organizations. And so they've eviscerated group after group after group. Um, so um, I wouldn't say that the future is, is dark. The future is certainly, I'm more optimistic than ever, but it's not going to be easy and it's going to require uh, organizing to take place offline as well as online. Ted Hankin, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Uh, I have, uh, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, my, my handle is a Cuban kind of inside joke. It's El Yuma, E-L-Y-U-M-A, which is their way of saying gringo, but kind of in an affectionate oh. way. El Yuma, so at El Yuma. Uh, I also have a blog that's also El Yuma. Um, and, you know, you can just go online and type my name in, Ted Hinken. I'm at Baruch College at CUNY, City University of New York. Excellent. And we'll put the, the links to that in the podcast notes. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week.
We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.